Hello and welcome to the Engage East Noble podcast. The intent here is to bring you relevant news, information, and commentary regarding East Noble schools in Northeast Indiana. My name is John Clausen. If you are not already aware, the school board unanimously passed their transgender policy for athletics at East Noble on Wednesday, August 23. From the point of view of some, the policy vote made it harder to protect girls. Yet others, who I truly believe also desire to fight for the safety of girls, express support for the policy. This has left many confused. Which is the right perspective? Is it right to support the policy? Let's explore it. In this episode, we will discuss the content of statements in the policy that refer to compliance to state law. Next, we will go through the law, HEA 1041, and then the policy itself. Then sum it all up for you to consider. Before we begin, let's be clear on the contents of this podcast. What I say here is my opinion, and sometimes I'm sharing the opinions of others. Everyone makes mistakes, but based on the information I have at the time of this recording, I believe what I say to be true. It is never my intent to mislead, and I'm often asking others for input to try to avoid tunnel vision. Please assume the positive. If you disagree with something, then engage. At the time of this recording, there remains unanswered questions by those on the board who support the policy and by our state representatives. All right, let's hop right into segment one. I entitled this, I Hear You. I hear you. Some of you think the wrong conclusions were jumped to when we try to explain that the policy and the law have significant weaknesses and it may fail to effectively protect girls. You pointed out, with relief and joy, that the policy said, in accordance to the law. It indeed says that on page one of the policy. We all read it that way at first and shared the same level of relief at first. But after looking at things more closely, some of us came to a different conclusion. We can see why when we look more closely at the wording. It says, quote, in compliance with state Indiana code, the school board provides the following grievance procedure. Note that it says nothing more than this, that they're providing a grievance procedure. Oh, but that's assumed, right? Because it says it's in pursuant of state law. Look at the bottom of the page where it says it again. It goes on to say, pursuant to state law, a male student based on the student's biological sex, dot, dot, dot. See, that seems really cut and dry. It says right there that this is pursuant to state law. It's in black and white. What on earth is your problem, man? Well, if we stop right there and don't put that into context with what the grievance procedure really commits to doing and what the law really says, then you are indeed correct. But that's the problem. It is important to understand that this text is only referring to the grievance procedure, that the grievance procedure itself is pursuant, a.k.a. being done to satisfy the state law. You might think this is splitting hairs, but we will soon explore if East Noble actually committed through the grievance procedure to remove a boy from girls' sports. And we will explore the state law to see if it actually penalizes a school for failing to remove a boy from girls' sports or not. What I ask you to do is to carefully consider the bigger picture here, not just the one-off text meant to be very specific in context. The way it is written can mean something very different than you think it does. Friends, any statement of intent can be taken from any source and be placed into a contract, but that doesn't mean at all that the contract has any commitments to effectively fulfill that intent. That's the gap. But that's not all. Let's go on to segment number two, which is the law, HEA 1041, which was passed in 2022. In section one through three of 20-33-13, it simply defines what the, that the law applies to a school sport. In section four, it makes the statement that boys cannot play in girls' sports. It requires a de designation of a sport team for males and females or co-ed. 
and it says the boy can't play on a team or a sport that's designated for girls. Section 5 talks about the grievance procedure itself. Part A says that a grievance may be filed by a student or a parent of a student to report a violation of the law in Section 4 above. Part B requires the school to have a grievance procedure. It does not define that it's to be specific to this law or scenario, and it does not prescribe what it should look like. Section 6 talks about who can take action against the school and what subjective conditions must be met. Part A says that only a student can sue the school via a civil action, and the student must believe that they are deprived or injured. What if most of the team has been influenced to believe that the boy is not taking away any opportunity? What if the girls are given the suggestion that it's great because they have a better chance at winning if the boy stays on, on their team? If those things happen, then they likely won't pursue what may be the only penalty for allowing a boy to play. Part B of that section just simply goes on to say the school cannot retaliate for a grievance. Section 7 lists the legal consequences, basically what the court may award. But what are the actual and consequential damages really? How does one truly quantify those damages? Will a court really consider them to be of any significance? And if they do, won't it just be appealed? What about the persistence of left-leaning courts? Even a Supreme Court justice refuses to define what a woman is. Section 8 covers schools for liability if they reasonably act in good faith. It is in the section that we might have our most hope. But there may be no reason for optimism here because it's unclear if the school has any significant consequences outside the civil liability described in an earlier section. If that's true and a student doesn't sue, then where is the motivation to follow the law with no consequences? For example, the law does not say that there are any disciplinary, administrative, or criminal consequences if the school were to allow the law to be violated. Questions about these things remain unanswered at the time of this recording. Perhaps if we only had time and transparency, we could have gotten those answers, and we might not be questioning the policy in the light of a weak law. So to wrap up the discussion about HEA 1041, as with most laws, if there's no teeth, meaning meaningful consequences, then the law really is often treated as a guideline. For example, if you were pulled over for violating the law by speeding, but never faced real consequences which truly influenced you financially or restricted your freedom to drive, you might just keep on speeding. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's explore what the consequences are and understand them. It says that only a student can file suit. If the girls on a team have been sufficiently influenced to believe that it's not wrong or a disadvantage for a boy to play, they might not file a grievance or a civil suit. We have not found that there are any substantial legal consequences listed in the law for a school to allow a boy to play other than the civil action by the student. Are you able to find a different statement? I have asked our local state representatives for input on if this school would face any real consequences outside a civil suit filed by a student. To me, HEA 1041 does not indicate that there are any other consequences. So, no civil suit equal no consequences. As of this recording, I don't have a reply to clarify this further. Next, the student has to prove damages. It seems to me that it would be very hard to quantify damages in these circumstances. Depending on the court, the damages may be determined to be small. Well, then there's the fact that the student's family has to take on the risk and pay up front for, legal, for the legal process. And it's not even a guarantee that they'll get their money back. They might only recoup basic costs even if they win their case at all. Do they even have time for this when most might not even have time to be involved in other ways? Would most hardworking middle-class families in our district really invest the time and money and take this risk? Finally, consider the probabilities of how this law might be liberally interpreted in large cities or more left-leaning areas. Consider what an activist court might also do. 
It seems rational and reasonable to consider that this law has left the door wide open for exploitation. So moving on to segment three, the East Noble Grievance Procedure. Hopefully the review of the law provided some insight as to why there's good reasons to be skeptical of its effectiveness to keep boys out of girls' sports. Now let's move on to the grievance procedure. Earlier I covered why paragraphs which refer to state law are contextual and may mean that the school policy is only intending to comply with the state law by fulfilling the requirements to have a grievance procedure rather than some blanket commitment to keep boys out of girls' sports. If you disagree with my skepticism here, then perhaps a review of the grievance procedure itself will give you something more to consider. First, we're going to consider the timeliness of the process. In paragraph one, the principal gets 15 instructional days. Paragraph two, the superintendent gets 10 more instructional days. In paragraph three, the board has no timeline at all, which leaves the door wide open to drag out the process. Common sense knows that a good process requires deadlines. Add these days all up and it seems possible for a boy to practice and play in a girl's sport for a substantial portion of the season. Imagine what could happen here if a principal or superintendent or the board wanted to slow play this. The process allows that to occur. We are asked just to trust that they won't do that. Sorry, but that's not how good processes are written and implemented. Why exactly was the board and superintendent so opposed to simply putting a deadline on this and associating the days to a sports calendar rather than the academic calendar? Our second topic of consideration in this grievance procedure is about asking a minor for input. The first two steps of this procedure, one with the principal, the other with the superintendent, both ask the grievant for input to the recommended resolution. Not clarification of their grievance, but just input to the recommended resolution. Why is this policy written such that a minor student or their parent gets input on what should be a simple legal decision? Why wouldn't the board answer our questions about the rationale for this? Third, protecting a minor from influence. Again, in those two procedure steps we just mentioned, nowhere does it ensure that a parent must be present while a school official discusses a legal matter with their minor child. Imagine if an activist principal or superintendent had a chance to provide the minor with a guilt trip or influence them with gender ideology. Are we so sure that an activist public school official would never try to talk a girl out of her grievance, really? If this is truly about protecting the girl, then why is it that the board was so dead set against the request for a parent to be present when they speak to a minor about a legal matter? The fourth concern about the grievance process is that it has no accountability. Absent from the procedure is any public record that the grievance was even filed and no record of the recommended resolution, the timings, the outcomes, or the people involved. It is critical in representative government to have transparency and accountability. That is the American way. Why is it that the school board and superintendent and trans activists seem to be so dead set against transparency and accountability? Finally, number five, there's no commitment at all to implement a resolution. In the first two steps, it only says recommend a resolution. And in the third step with the board, it simply mentions a decision. It never commits to implementing a resolution in accordance to state law. Why leave the ambiguity? Can this leave the door open for the boy to continue to play while they challenge state law? It is reasonable to argue that it can be used in that way indeed. Okay, we're moving on to segment four, which I have entitled the summary, and it has a couple of parts. First, I want to say that I've done my level best to lay out the case here as dispassionately and logically as I can. I have no other motivation other than the truth and to protect girls. If you still are reluctant to trust my motivations, then I ask you this. 
What good would it be for me to stand up against a policy that is said to protect girls? There's only downside for me. I could be made out to be a complete fool for taking this position. If I am wrong, then your trust of my credibility is at risk. But I'm willing to take that chance because I have stated what I believe, and I believe it to be the truth, and I believe the girls must be protected. It is right to err on the side of caution. If in the end someone can explain to me how my understandings are wrong, then I have to be open to being corrected. I would ask the same of you. But know this, since the policy was released for review, there has been unjust reluctance to answer the most critical questions. So if I'm wrong, then those who were asked for clarity and insight bear some responsibility. And so do those who failed to be transparent for 60 days as they deliberated this policy before releasing it to their constituents. So let's add it all up. Number one, near zero transparency. Only because we forced their hand with a FOIA did we even get a glimpse into the policy a day before. Prior to that, repeated requests to get insight into what was being proposed were denied with few exceptions. A critical question wasn't even answered until after the vote, and now I know why. The board had 60 days to review and discuss versions of what they were working on with their constituents and wouldn't do it. They gave us one day. Second, they refused patient, rational suggestions. The board would not even consider or discuss a delay in the vote to make the procedure stronger at protecting girls. Third, there are crickets from the trans community. The trans supporters expressed support for the board and never expressed any concerns or disagreement with the anti-trans policy that they were getting ready to pass. Weird. Fourth, the new policy has very poorly defined processes. It has no deadline for a full grievance to be completed. The school can influence a minor without their parent present. The school mysteriously asks a student for law and action advice. There's no visibility into the procedure for the community to hold the school accountable. And nowhere does the school commit to implementing any resolution. And as for the law, there appears to be no penalty for the school if they continue to allow a boy to play in girls' sports unless and until a girl files civil suit in a court system that has often shown that it's hostile to her values. Working families have to take a financial risk and use time they don't have to go to court where they may not even win. I don't know what to do to make it any clearer. The overwhelmingly clear pattern is that this is worded such that there are gaping holes in accountability and transparency and influence without a parent present and in the, in the lack of substantial legal consequences for allowing a boy to play in girls sports. All this adds up and leaves the girls at substantial risk when up against activists in schools and the courts. If you disagree, engage and make your case. But know this, our assumptions must not be to blindly trust public school officials or the courts. There are numerous examples of why you could be skeptical of them. If the foundation of your argument is to blindly trust school officials and the courts, then it's unlikely for us to find common ground. There are simply too many examples nationally and even in the state of Indiana where the trust is shown to be misplaced. Even here at East Noble, the board is given opportunity after opportunity to gain trust, and they regularly make the wrong move. If after this carefully articulated explanation you find me guilty of irrationally having concerns, and you choose to support the board and give them the benefit of the doubt, 
then I ask you, where is your empathy and passion for the girls to simply make a policy better to ensure that these procedures and laws are not deviantly manipulated? To those who have may now changed their mind from their former understanding, there's no judgment here. I understand and I empathize with how you came to your former conclusion. Please consider letting the past go and help us protect the ladies of East Noble. Let's work together and build trust. Well, now let's take a short break. I heard something this week that I think applies to our situation here at East Noble. Let's listen to an excerpt from the Steve Dace show where he talks about the pursuit of truth or the pursuit of power. God is the most powerful being of the cosmos, but he does not primarily rule by that power. Now, sometimes he'll show it to you, like why we needed the rainbow in the first place. Sometimes daddy will take his belt off and we will go behind the woodshed. But that is not primarily how God shows us who he is. Mercy actually triumphs over judgment in God's kingdom. Now, it doesn't cancel judgment. Every now and then, someone needs to be made an example out of. But, but God's kingdom tilts to mercy. Christ is the best example of this, not to judgment. No, God primarily demonstrates his character through truth. The enemy... He primarily demonstrates his character through power. And now I ask you, right now, are we a culture that more craves truth or power? Are we a culture that is more girded and guided by truth or by power? You are on the side of God's government, God's covenant, when you are a person, a family, an institution, an organization, a culture. You are on the side of God's covenant when you are a when you when your prime directive is truth. Even if you don't even understand that yet. Even if you don't even recognize who God is yet, you are walking in the light. Doesn't mean you'll escape judgment for your sins. That's not an exchange for your salvation. But in this world, you're in the light when you follow truth. When you reject truth, you will instead try to access power. For the purposes, by the way, of imposing your view of truth. That's why there are no neutral institutions. And they look from man to pig and pig to man and back to pig again, and they couldn't tell the difference. That's the last line of Animal Farm. Couldn't tell which was which. Because it wasn't about four legs good, two legs bad. It was about power. Will to power. Power is the enemy's dominion. The enemy's dominion is driven by the access to, the acquisition of, and the exercise forwith of power. And whenever you are a in an individual, in a family, in a culture, or an institution whose primary mission, goal, etc., is to acquire, achieve, display, and deploy power, you are walking in darkness. And it doesn't matter if there's a cross in front of your building. That's a dead relic because you're a dead letter. You're given over. If the calls for common ground by some are sincere, then simple and reasonable process improvements could have been made, and they still can be. Doing so would show that the school board members are in pursuit of truth rather than power. But 
if you continue to choose not to give an inch, time after time, then it will continue to be hard to accept that calls for common ground are indeed sincere. We deserve answers to our questions and our girls deserve a stronger policy and a better law. Here's some final comments. When you are sincerely standing for what you believe to be true and good and beautiful, then there is an endless stream of living water. You never get tired, you never give up, and pride does not rot out your heart. I remain as energetic as ever to protect our students, and I hope you are as well. Thank you for your time today. Please listen again soon. And I hope that you will join us on our community for further dialogue on our Facebook group, Engage East Noble Public. Until next time, count your blessings and peace.